0: Frickin' Frick. Oh, frickin' Frick. <laughs> I'm trying to swear less. <laughs> flippity flabbergaster. Frickin' Frick is more offensive to me than just oh, flippity <laughs>
1: Females of History podcast where we tell the stories of women through history that you should know about. I'm Lucy. I'm Talissa. And I'm Erin. And it has been a hot minute. It's been the
0: hottest of hot minutes. A busy hot
1: minute. Yeah, we 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 went away. We meant to
0: take a break and we ended up doing a lot of learning. <laughs> yes. So much reading. <laughs> I know, which is you know, it's kind of good that we're doing it, but boy it came all at once, it didn't it? A lot. it? It was a lot. It's been it's been it's been a time. But hey, it's important Mm-hmm. So are these stories, and we can't forget these things because otherwise they're bound to happen no. over and over and over but, again. Yeah. It's yeah, it's always very eye-opening for sure when when things like this do happen, and then you do have to reflect, or you're 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 made to reflect more than you normally would, and mm-hmm. it can be confronting, it can be a lot, but <sighs> deep breath. But we're here; it's a hot minute. We're back. We got a hot new episode. Yeah, take a load off, guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chill out. For like five minutes and go back to it, please, because it's super important. It's important.
1: It's super important. (laughs) Okay. So before I get started, uh, just a small warning that this conversation does surround a person who has died. So that's a warning for our Indigenous, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. And there will be some depictions of this person on our instagram and on our facebook um and so i want to talk to you guys about barangaroo what do you know about barangaroo that's a
0: suburb isn't it in
1: sydney uh, uh yeah i don't know if it's a suburb is it's, it a a sub- it's a precinct it's a precinct it's just mm. a different way of saying it's, i'm
0: from regional australia i don't know these things it's got right it. next <laughs> to the great big dirty filthy casino that's being built which is pretty tragic but it's it's a it's a nice sort of it's like an oval. Yeah, I stayed there. It was nice. But it's obviously more than just an oval. Yes. I don't really... All, yeah, so all I know, precinct in Sydney. That's yeah, it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like on the harbour, next
1: to the harbour bridge. Yeah, it's quite nice. Yes. I like it's it. It's new. Um Very new. But before it was a precinct, Barangaroo was a woman. She was an Indigenous woman. She was a Camaray girl woman from around Manly, North Harbour, which was that group at the time, around the seventeen. 17- 80s 1790s was a really really influential group in the region now people who do know Barangaroo would know her as being the wife of Benalong Benalong Point which is another part of the harbour well it's also it's also where the opera house is that's also Point Benalong there's a restaurant there too yeah right so it's like Benalong and then Barangaroo but yeah so she was with Benalong this is Sydney Harbour by the way yeah Sydney so this is We're talking about Barangaroo. And so before she met Benalong, which she's known for, she actually had two children and a partner who all died of smallpox because when the English arrived, they brought, as we have we spoken about before, Ridiculous amount of diseases with them mm. that, you know, just like decimated the local population. So it actually wiped out eighty percent of the population. Are you serious? Well, curious. that's what that's what I read.
0: Yeah, that's a huge. I knew it was mm. big, but I don't a think huge I amount, eighty percent. But it
1: actually has links to sort of her place in society. So Benelong was he was someone who kind of connected the indigenous people with the white. Settlers. He was kind of like the go-between, and he ended up meeting the king. And he was he was quite a big, a big figure, and he was quite I mean not not welcoming. Like there were there were actually, there was conflict, and then there were periods of peace, and then well, there was were conflict, and then periods so. of peace. But like he met the governor. Um, he sort of started to wear Western mm. European clothing and was sort of a go-between. Barangaroo was his wife, and she wasn't as interested in playing that role. Playing now, nice, playing, what is it? Playing yeah. home, playing house. Mm. So according to history, Berengru was quite likely present at the first meeting between the white newcomers and the Khmerigal, uh women at Manly in February 1788. And there's actually a painting of this, which we'll put on our Instagram. But she was also apparently, possibly among the groups of women who tried to lure the white men ashore um, so that the warriors could attack them so you know there's a bit of bit of both going on um now English officers described Ranguru as being striking but frightening they thought that she was around 40 but she was actually a fair bit older I mean according to what is written that's the thing like I did a lot of I tried to find out a lot about her but it's, there There wasn't, there's not, there's yeah, not much. I am so surprised there's yeah. not that much information on a woman in history. <laughs> yeah, and an, a woman an indigenous colour. woman yep. in history too. Yes, but by the time that the English actually properly met Barangaroo, smallpox had, had, as we said, um, you know, ravaged the population. So and it so also I killed did. a disproportionate number of Older people and women, Braenguru had survived, which meant that she was one of a smaller group of women in her population who actually understood and had a lot of knowledge of the laws, the women's rituals the teachings within that community. And so she had a lot of authority over the other younger women in the community. And while some of the other younger women agreed to wear, you know, European clothing, Barangaroo refused. And this is something that people talk about a lot that she, even at the governor's table, she, she just wouldn't do it. You know, she was like, nah. And this was, I watched a video on this and Auntie Beryl Van Oploo kind of spelled it out. They said when they asked her where her clothes were and that she couldn't come in, she just walked straight past them and then sat down at the table, which is great. And other people describe yes. her as wearing only. She was painted. She wore a slim bone through her nose and that was that was it. <gasps> That's so cool. Yes. yes. Um, first Fleet Marine Watkin-Tench, he had a few account- encounters with Barangaroo. The first time they met, she was apparently angry and so you know the a lot of the things sort Ugh. of contrast Benalong, who you know he also was he wasn't like hey go on guys have, let's have a great time he also like they had
0: issues yeah but standard, um, the woman's described as angry
1: yeah. The yeah
0: man is strong the woman is angry hysterical yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah losing her shit <sighs> mm.
1: but apparently at this <sighs> first so. meeting ben Along so presented cool. barangaroo wearing a petticoat um and this guy, Watkin Tench, describes this as the prudery of the wilderness, which her husband, Benalong, joined us to ridicule, and we soon laughed her out of it. The petticoat was dropped without with hesitation, and Barangaroo stood armed, cap and knee in nakedness. Tench said that, Benalong asked that they combed and cut her hair and that she seemed pleased with the operation. But she wouldn't taste any of the food, any of the wine, even though Benlong kind of invited her to do so. She was like, no, I just don't want to. Uh, but she was described by Tench as well as amidst a horde of roaming savages in the desert wastes of New South Wales might be found as much feminine innocence, softness and modesty, allowing for inevitable difference of education as the most finished system could bestow. He also says that Bennelong and Barangaroo were in a bit of a violent relationship and that Bennelong would hit her, um, but that Barangaroo would also give as good as she (laughs) got. good yeah and barangaroo is also described as on one occasion being invited to watch a flogging but she got so angry about it that she tried to take the whip from the guy who was doing the flogging and i think the the flogging in this instance was of a guy who had stolen food and she just didn't get it because like the same concept of ownership of possessions is just wasn't part of the Culture. So she's like, why are you even flogging this guy? Like, can you not? Food is food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, she also didn't like Ben along hang- hanging out with the whites. So when he went to Sydney, she really didn't want him to go. So she broke his fishing spear. Now, all of these stories sort of show her as being this like dominant, um, angry, angry woman. But There's a reason for this and there's a reason for her anger and her distrust. And a lot of historians put it down to her role in society. So among these women, they were fish women. So while Mm. the men would tend to use their canoes and their small boats, these really, really narrow boats to get from place to place, the women would use them to fish. And they would often be seen out on the harbour, even with children, fishing, singing, laughing, talking, all of the women going about their, their day and their work and providing for the community. And they, yeah, so they fished from bark canoes with lines and hooks. Men speared the fish and the women made their lines by twisting two strands of fibre from karajong cabbage or flax trees, animal fur or fine grass. Then they took a turban shell and made their distinctive bara fish hooks. The fish hooks were really, really valuable. Women would wear them around their necks as necklaces and English officers started collecting them too because they were just they were really, really well made and they were really cool, I guess, engineering. Mm. And I think um like there were severe punishments if you were caught stealing them because they were just so valuable. They were respected tools. And these women's skills in fishing, swimming, diving, canoeing, they were they were also really respected. They were extraordinary. So the women would go out on these bark canoes with fires lit on clay pads that they would use for warmth and for cooking. And and like the guys on the shore, like the English guys, just couldn't believe it. They were like, how are these women they call them contemptible skiffs, the boats. Um, they're like, how are they fishing? How do they have a fire on board? How do they have um, little kids with them in surf that that it was quite big surf? They just couldn't believe it. But they they dominated. And that was where they got their status from. So what happened was on the first meeting with the Whites, what historians think might have triggered barangaroo's kind of anger was the fact that the english brought in a huge haul of something like 4000 australian salmon in their nets so they're coming with their new methods oh, of shit. getting fish and mm. and they give they gave 40 fish of 5 pounds each to benelong's group and now that was more than more than they would have been able to eat. It was just – it was extravagant. It was – Excessive. It was excessive. It wasn't sustainable. It was
0: overfish, clearly. And it's
1: like – it's such a – not to generalise, but it is such a male move, like, look how much fish I've got. I've got more fish than you, like – It's a
0: very Western thing to do, too. It is a very
1: Western thing to do. And as a woman whose place in society came from her ability to provide – and she dominated because she was dominate, so good at that. That's, that's kind of offensive because, be because off. you yeah. know, they they, they, they have the skill, like they, they use their skill and their mm. time and their expertise and their knowledge to catch the fish. And then these guys come in they're like, here's 40, like whatever. Like what you do isn't, it isn't needed anymore and so it would be make you angry and would also make you a bit concerned because you'd be like what does this mean for our place in society if suddenly our role as the as the fisherwomen isn't you know it isn't as important
0: anymore and also like if they're going to be taking that much fish out of the sea every day yeah are we even going to have how many fish to get yeah yeah. like how do we continue our role in fishing if there's no fish left in that area like so Mm. many concerns there yeah such a
1: Metaphor (laughs) for so many things. Yeah, it is. It totally is. Mm. So Barangaroo had a baby girl in 1791. And while Bennelong wanted her to give birth at government house so that the child would belong to Sydney... Um, Barangaroo refused and she gave birth alone um, in the bush on the edge of town which like that's what she wanted to do there's nothing that's like that's what she wanted to do Mm -hmm. and a a man called David Collins came to visit her afterwards and was stunned to see her this is quite walking about Alone, picking up sticks to mend her fire and the little baby was lying on some soft bark on the ground. But sadly, she didn't live long mm. after the birth. And there's the officers were silent on why she died. I've read that she died in childbirth, but others say that it's not clear how she died. And her little baby died after a few months too. And the timeline... I really hope that I haven't stuffed it up, but the timeline isn't clear. If she was alive when her baby died because some say that the baby died after some say that she, the baby died before. Yeah. That that she lived to see three children die. Yeah, so it's not clear, but daughter's name was Dilbung, which means bellbird, which I think is really yeah, lovely. Cool. But um yeah, so she died, but after after a traditional cremation ceremony with her fishing gear. Bennelong spread her ashes in Governor Phillips' garden, which is present-day circular quay. But Aboriginal women continued fishing along Sydney Harbour, at least until the late 1820s. So you could still see them for a long time after the first fleet arrived, but obviously not anymore today. And um, Linda Burney, who's an Indigenous MP... Mm -hmm. Uh, describes describes her as a as a heroine of the Australian story and she wants people to stand in her shoes as a woman who went through trauma but who shone as a leader in her
0: own right which is so true literally stood her ground yeah Yeah. authentically Mm. stood Mm. up for herself and also the other women around her
1: yeah and it's really i think it's interesting this um dr heidi norman said that her story gives a very real insight into gender politics at the time and it really you know because there's such a trope like the angry black Mm. woman is Mm -hmm. such a massive Mm -hmm. trope it's such a problem and it's like it was all justified
0: it's usually always justified
1: i know (laughs) But I actually think that it's it's a story of resilience yep. and of yep. standing up, which is really cool. Like, yeah, I think it's a good story. What's interesting, and this was something I was reading, an, an article from Crikey from two thousand and six from Chris Graham, the editor of the National Indigenous Times, and he was writing about the naming of the of the of the precinct Barangaroo, mm-hmm. and he was quoting Paul Keating, who had described it as Aboriginal Keach noting that it has no geographical association with with like where Barangaroo was from. Like she was from Manly and they've
0: just like taken her name and put it That's in. That's what I was thinking in, when you first in, said that she was crying. Yeah. So for someone like me who doesn't know distances, like how it's not nearby is what you're saying. And they're all
1: sort of in Sydney, but it's not close. It's like it's across the harbour,
0: right? And around the corner.
1: Yeah, it's not that yeah. close. And so he's quoting Keating, who said that if the New South Wales government is having pangs of colonial conscience, it can support the Perth Aborigines against the Western Australian government in the Noongar appeal that would be useful rather than trivial. And the Noongar appeal has gone on to be the largest native title settlement in Australia, which is cool. What's also interesting is that this guy Chris Graham has said that it can be considered quite disrespectful to name places after Indigenous people who have died, which is why most names aren't named after people. Like I can think of Benelong. That's obviously named after Benelong, but most of the other places are, you know, they're named after a place of running water or a place well, of, that's, mm. why couldn't of they thunder use- or...
0: Language, like words from their from indigenous languages. Obviously, there were hundreds of indigenous languages, but given that using a pers an Aboriginal person's name once they've passed can be quite controversial and can be seen as offensive, why wouldn't they then pick a word from their language and use it as the suburb name, which they normally do?
1: I think it was, and like this is, I don't know that everyone would agree with what this guy is saying, mm. but I think it was an attempt to honour, you know, a really really cool indigenous woman and it it, yeah. it it kind of had a nice symmetry like there's Benelong Point, and then there's Barangaroo and they those two are quite close geographically mm, yeah but yeah you're not wrong it's it's something that was interesting because I hadn't thought about it that way until I read that article and I was like ah, oh, like yeah it's really really yeah different way of looking one. at it it is tough you're not the right people to decide that though no but it's good to because
0: I think I think I don't think a lot of people actually know you know who Barangaroo I, was honestly This sound might sound quite bad, but I'd never heard of her before. And I'd never heard of Benalong either. And I only live like, what, an hour and a half down the road Mm. from where these people lived. Mm. So thanks for the episode, Lucy. You're welcome. I was really,
1: I was excited to learn about her. Mm. Yeah, Mm. definitely. I just think it's, yeah.
0: As we already, already, always say, like, we're not part of this community. We're not the authority on these stories. But I think we've got the responsibility to share these stories. Yeah, and it's a starting point.
1: Yeah, more research is always great. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Thanks for telling. <laughs> and
0: the sting. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Fierce Females of History Podcast. Feels good to be back. It does. Mm-hmm. I feel like Tin Man in Wizard of Oz and they're just like, oil can. And now I'm like, yeah, ready to go. Give me more apps. Give me more people. Gangs back together. Exactly. Um, as always, you can find uh, us on Instagram at Fierce Females Podcast. We are contactable via email. Maybe you've got someone we should be talking about. History at gmail.com.
1: Oh, what you can always do, and this is very simple, this is a simple one, record <laughs> a series of kind of dystopian Twilight Zone style short movies that are meant to impart some moral lesson that might be a bit dubious. Make sure that you emphasize a certain word whenever you're doing the narration of these videos. We will pick up on the certain word, we'll pick up on the first letter of that word, and then we'll pick up the code that you're trying to send us. That's a little reference from The Man in the High Castle, which is something you should definitely watch. Yeah,
0: that sounds really easy to do. But also, don't (laughs) send us creepy videos. We're not creepy ass videos being sent to us, Lucy. But what if they've got a really high production value? (laughs) Then you can watch them. Dips not. Not my jam at all. But, you know, sure, there might be some people and we're just going to flick them straight to you. That's fine. Can't wait.